Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Open with me to Jude. The book of Jude, if you turn to the very back of your Bible, the last book is the book of Revelation. The book right before that is this little teeny tiny letter of Jude. And uh, I'm going to kind of recap you real quick as we've been doing every week. I'll give you a quick little recap of where we're at, bring you up to speed, and then we'll dive in. Um, Let me actually read the first six verses of this letter. And... uh, And this is the ground that we've covered so far. It says this, starting in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would open our ears and our eyes and um, our hearts to understand your word this morning. I pray that you would give us revelation into what you would speak to us, what you want to stick with us, and what you want us to live out and apply in our lives. I pray that you would guide everything about our time in your word this morning and that we would be stronger, uh, built up in the faith because of it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So we can see kind of verses one and two form the introduction of Jude's letter. He, he, tells, he tells us who, who he is. Uh, this is Jude, and he identifies himself as a brother of James, a servant of Jesus Christ. And uh, those are important identifications. He sees himself primarily as a servant of Jesus Christ. And then he tells us who he's writing to. He's writing to some unknown to us community of Christians. We know they're believers because he describes them by using three powerful terms. He says those who are called, beloved in God the Father, that means they're children of God, and kept for Jesus Christ. Called, beloved, and kept. Three powerful words that describe Every believer, if you are in Christ, it's because you are called and beloved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ until the day of salvation. And so this letter, we've said this before, but this letter will have little meaning or interest to you unless you are a born-again child of God who is abiding in Christ Jesus. If you are, then this letter is for you. It is written to you and for you. And in verse Two, he, he opens his letter with this amazing blessing that he speaks over them. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And to that, I say amen. I pray it over you and over myself this morning. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to us. Man, we need all of that. 
I need mercy. I need peace. And I need love. And so I'm sure you do too. And so, so Jude prays that. He speaks that blessing over them and over you as we read this. And then in verses three and four, I, I believe he gets to kind of the main purpose. I believe it kind of forms the purpose statement of the letter. Why is he writing? And he says, I actually was eager to write to you about something else. I was going to write to you about our common salvation. I was going to write a letter about that. He says, but I found it necessary. And the, and the original language says, I was compressed. There was pressure put on me. I was moved upon with strong force to write to you about something else. And that is this, to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We talked about how what that means is that there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints. He says, I'm not urging you to contend for your personal feeling of faith in Jesus. That's important. He talks about that later. Build yourselves up in the faith. He's not saying contend for your personal feelings of faith. He's saying contend for the faith that is the body of truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so we saw that in those verses, because verse 4 goes on to say that certain people have crept in unnoticed and they were perverting the truth of God's word. He says, contend for the faith because certain people have crept in among you and they're perverting the truth of God's word. And so we saw that one, there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints. That faith is repeatedly threatened from within the church. That's number two. And number three, because of that, we must contend then for the faith. If we're going to faithfully pass on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of God's word, that, that faith has constantly been threatened from those within the church. And so we must contend for the faith to hand it down to our children and our grandchildren faithfully. And so that's verses 3 and 4. That's why he's writing. And what he does then, beginning in verse 5, is he launches then into seven Old Testament examples of people who abandoned the faith in some way, rebelled against God, rebelled against the truth, rejected the truth of God, and he uses those seven examples in the Old Testament as an example and warning for us today. He says, so contend for the faith because certain people have crept in unnoticed and they're perverting the faith. And he says, now let me remind you of others who have abandoned and perverted the faith before as a warning for you. And so that's the section that we're in now. And last week, we looked at the first of those examples. Uh, and that was from the history of Israel. It's verse 5 where he talks about the people of Israel who God had delivered out of slavery in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. God had, had done all these miracles, delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, across the Red Sea on dry ground, brings them across the wilderness to the very edge of the promised land. That is a land that God himself had promised to give to them. And on the very edges of that promised land, they sent in 12 spies, one from every tribe of Israel. And, and the 12 spies come back and 10 of them said, the land is great, but we can't do it. We can't possess it. The people are too big or too strong. The cities are too large and well fortified. We're not able to overcome it. We're not able to do it. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua said, listen, God promised to give us that land. Our faith should never be in our ability to possess the land, but in God's ability to give it to us. That's what we talked about last week. It's because of the grumbling of those 10 spies, though, and how they contradicted God's word. God says, I'm bringing you into the land. And they said, no, we can't do it. So they contradicted God's word. It says, and that unbelief spread throughout the whole congregation of Israel. And because of that, they were doomed, judged to wander the wilderness 40 years. Those 
20 years and older who grumbled against God, who believed the false reports, God says you'll never enter the promised land because of unbelief. And so he uses that as an example. He says, just like the 10 spies who came back and contradicted God's word and caused other people to doubt and enter into judgment, he says, those who have infiltrated the church are speaking things contrary to God's word and they're hurting the faith of many people. That was just the first example. We looked at that last week. Today we're going to look at Jude's second example. He launches right into it. It's the same thought, and it's here in verse 6. Here's a second example. He says in verse 6, And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So the second example that Jude points to is the example of fallen angels. He says, let me remind you guys, listen, contend for the faith because certain people have crept into the church and they're perverting the faith. They're twisting it. They're contradicting God's truth. Now, let me remind you of the Israelites. When 10 of them came back and gave a negative report and infected everybody else with unbelief and that brought judgment. Now, let me remind you of the fallen angels, he says. So this is a second example. To understand what he's referring to, we need to understand some things that are happening in the background here. So... First, the Jews had a highly developed understanding and doctrine of angels. They believed, and scripture teaches, that angels exist. That they were created by God as servants of God, to serve him in many different capacities. They also believed, and scripture teaches, that there was a fall of some of the angels. That certain angels rebelled against God, rejected heaven, and were cast out. So, when we talk about Satan... Uh, another name for it was Lucifer, Satan himself, was actually created as an angel, was, was a created being, was created by God to praise God. But he rebelled and he led other angels to rebel. And so Jude points to the rebellion and fall of angels and he points to that as an example and warning for us. Now what does he say about that? What did the angels do? Well, verse 6 tells us. Let's read it again. It says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. They didn't stay within their own position of authority. What does that mean? Jude's like, they didn't stay in their lane, man. They didn't stay in their lane. They didn't keep within their proper domain. They didn't stay in the original intended position in which they were created. They didn't stay within the limits of authority that God gave them. But listen to this. They transgressed those limits, the limits that God had put on them. They transgressed those limits, and they trespassed into areas that were beyond their authority. They went outside the bounds prescribed for them by God. So God set boundaries for the angels, limits to their authority, and they trespassed. They transgressed those boundaries and trespassed into areas that were not their authority. That's why when we talk about sin, we talk about sin or iniquity or trespasses. Forgive us. We could say forgive us our sins or forgive us our what? Trespasses. Trespassing into areas that where God sets a boundary and says, no, don't do that. Don't go there. When we do that or go there, we are trespassing. We're stepping out of bounds. We're we're ignoring or rebelling against the limits that God has set. What caused the angels to do that? What caused the angels to rebel, to fall. 
to trespass into areas that were beyond their authority, to ultimately reject God and heaven and to sin against him. There were two lines of thought on what caused the angels to fall, two kind of lines of tradition, and I think Jude has both in view here, okay? So number one, pride. Number one, pride. The first line of thought is that pride is what caused the rebellion of the angels. Pride was the sin of the angels. And a couple of Old Testament passages show us that pride actually caused the fall of Satan. Remember, he was created to praise God in the presence of God. He's an angel. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14 says this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low, because you said in your heart, I will ascend. Circle those three words. I will ascend. I must be brought higher is what he's saying. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Underline these words. I will set my throne on high. I want the throne. I want to be lifted high. I will sit on the amount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Here it is again. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I'm going to be like God. I'm going to sit on the throne. I'm going to be lifted high. Do you see it? See the pride of Satan. Though created by God and beautiful and magnificent, glorious. The scripture makes that very clear. Satan was magnificent, beautiful. He's a created being, created to praise and worship and serve the true God who is on the throne. And yet he said, no, I'm going to be on the throne. I'm going to be lifted high. I'm going to be worshipped as God. Look at Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 14 through 17. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. And so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you. O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire, circle these four words. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. What caused the fall of this angel? Pride. Your heart was proud. What a silly thing to be proud of something that's out of your control. To be proud of your beauty as if you made yourself beautiful and weren't created that way by God. To be proud of your abilities as if God is not the one who gave them to you. As if everything that you have or can do is not a gift from a sovereign God. What foolishness to take something great about yourself. And it's not bad to acknowledge, man, God made me cool in this area. Or I'm good at this. Or I'm solid at that. Or man, maybe you are beautiful. Awesome. Okay? To take that and recognize that and go, man, the deal is turn it into worship. Don't turn it into pride. Turn it into God. You've done wonderful things. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for this advantage. Thank you for this thing. 
It's a gift from you, the sovereign God, instead of saying, look, whoa, I am pretty magnificent in this area. Worship me. Huh? But we do it. We do that stuff. We start to feel real big about ourselves. We start to really feel ourselves and go, oh, yeah, I'm great in that area. Listen, the New Testament also connects the sin of pride with Satan. So speaking about, he's, Paul, the apostle, is writing here. He's writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor, and he's speaking to Timothy about the qualifications for church leaders. And he gives several qualifications. He says, if someone wants to be an overseer, a bishop, a, an elder, a leader in the church, he has to have certain qualifications, okay? Look for certain things. Don't just throw anybody in there. And this is one of the qualifications. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. It says, he must not be a recent convert. Why? Otherwise, he might become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He's saying, don't just throw anybody in there, especially somebody who's kind of new in the faith. Otherwise, they'll think they're there because they're awesome and not because the hand of God chose them for that. Not, and they'll rely on maybe their own abilities and not on the power of God in them. He says, because we don't want to give them an opportunity to be just puffed up with pride. Because pride is what caused the condemnation of the devil. So it appears that pride was one of the main motivating forces in Satan's rebellion against God, and we know that he led a rebellion of other angels against the Lord. Listen, guys, the scripture has a lot to say about pride. Um, and pride is a tricky thing, because pride masquerades as humility all the time. Oh, no, you know, it's like somebody compliments you, it's like, oh, no, I'm not good. It's like, no, that's false humility, man. It's false humility. If, if you're good at something, you should know you're good at that. It's okay. It's not, it's not bad to say, yeah, God gifted me in this. It's what do you do with that? Yeah. What do you do with that? Let me, let me just share with you. This is a sampling. I almost included all of this in your notes. If you want all these references, I'll give them to you. But this is just a tiny sampling of, of some of the things that the scriptures have to say about pride and the dangers of pride. Proverbs 21 verse 4 said, a proud heart produces sin. I think pride is perhaps at the root of most, if not all, sin. Yeah. I think pride is at the root of most, if not all, sin. So if you sin in some area, when you track it down to its root, there's probably pride in there somewhere. Pride that thinks you know better than God. Pride that thinks you deserve better than, than what you feel like you have. Pride that, that causes you to lash out in anger. Guaranteed, he says, there's pride there somewhere. When people are striving with each other, pride's involved. Pride is involved. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, and Proverbs 8, 13, tells us that God hates pride. You're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. God, I like, you know, puffy flower Jesus. You know, I like... I like walking through a field of daisies, hippie Jesus. I really, I like, the, I like God is love. Yes, God is love. And the God who is love hates certain things because he's love. Because everything about him is love. His hate is rooted in the fact that he is love. So what he hates is determined by what he loves. And God, scripture tells us, hates pride. Hates pride because it's destructive. We're, we're going to see that here. James chapter 4 verse 6 tells us that God opposes the proud. James chapter 4 verse 6. I mean, think about, think about that. God opposes the proud. The God who is all-powerful, omnipotent, like I can't, 
Johnny Cash said, my arms are too short to box with God. Like, I'm not going to beat him. Right? It's a wise saying. All of our arms are too short to box with God. Like, in a fight between you and God, let's, let's do the math. Okay? And it says that God actively works in opposition to the prideful. God opposes, is in opposition to the proud. I don't want God working against me because I'm living filled with pride. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 12 tells us that the proud will be humbled. Not might be, says the proud will be humbled. Proverbs chapter 11 verse 2 tells us that pride brings disgrace. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18 tells us that pride leads to destruction. So clearly, pride has devastating consequences. It produces sin and strife, disgrace and destruction, and so God hates it and actively works in opposition to it. And so what do we do? What do we do when we see pride in our hearts? Because it, it, it's there. It's going to pop up. Like if The one who thinks they have no pride is probably the most proud of all. All right? When we see pride in our hearts, we need to go to God with it and ask God to root it out and to help us humble ourselves before him. To not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, as the book of Romans would say. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to. Think of yourselves soberly. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up. There's grace to the humble. There's grace to the humble. That means even humble people need grace because it's a humble thing to recognize there's pride in you and go, God, I don't like it. I'm sorry, it's there. Help me with that. Help me root that out. Help me to be humble before you. I don't know how many times I've prayed the prayer, Lord, humble me without humiliating me, right? Like, Lord, please humble me without humiliating me. I don't want to reach the point of having to be humiliated before I humble myself, you know? I want to spot pride in my heart every time it rears its head and I want to ask God to keep me humble. And it does. It pokes up all the time. It shows up in funny ways all over the place. I got way more pride in me than I, than I care to mention. It's just there. It's all over the place. And God just having to point it out to me all the time. And I'm like, man, you're right, Lord. That's pride. and That's ugly. And help me with that, please. Amen. So that was the first line of thought. What caused the fall of the angels? Well, pride. Maybe they fell in the same condemnation as the devil puffed up with pride and obviously they thought they knew better than God and they were going to go against God so now they were puffed up with pride. Number two, lust. Number two, lust. Now this is where things get weird. Jude kind of takes us into some freaky territory here. He really does. He takes us into some obscure passages some stuff. Like we're going to go there because Jude goes there but this is where things get a little weird, okay? So track with me because Jude is actually referencing things that if we don't have them in our minds, we're like, what are, what are you talking about, okay? We can be almost certain here that Jude is referring to the sin of the angels that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, okay? So let me read Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 with you and then we'll kind of flush it out, okay? Remember, the people Jude is writing to 
have an understanding. It's clear. He flips these examples off like these readers just know what he's talking about. He goes, remember the Israelites, guys, and remember the fallen angels who fell into sin and God judged them. And remember Sodom and Gomorrah is what he's going to do next week. And, and remember this, remember that. He's flipping off these examples like they know because they do. They have a background understanding. So we, they're not as accessible to us, those references. That's why we have to go and study them. Okay? But they would have known exactly what he was talking about. So we have to do the digging. So let's do the digging. Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. It says this. It's one of the weirdest passages in all of scripture. Many scholars don't even know what to do with it. Okay? When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, that would be a reference to angels, saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he's flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So obvious, right? Like, what, that's, a, that's a clear passage. What are you Right? Okay. We're like, no, that didn't help, Jason. That brought more confusion. Thanks, a bundle. Okay. According to Jewish tradition, the sin of the angels here was that they committed sexual immorality with the daughters of men. That is, with human women. That's what the scriptures teaching. And it appears that Jude shared that understanding of Genesis chapter 6. And I say that for three reasons. I need to build this case because many people will kind of disagree with that. And let me just say, many brilliant scholars who love the Lord and are committed to the authority of Scripture have different takes on this. Um, and there are some solid takes. It's worth investigating. Okay? Um, I believe this is the majority opinion amongst the scholars, at least that I've studied and read. Um, and I believe you can make a strong case for it, that the sin of the angels here was that of committing sexual immorality with human women. And, and, and we say that for three reasons. And I believe Jude shares that understanding for three reasons. First, as we've already said, Jewish tradition consistently understood Genesis chapter 6 this way. So I included, I believe, in your notes, references from some important writings within the Jewish tradition. Now those writings are not part of the canon of scripture that we have, but they were important writings to the Jewish people and to Jewish tradition. So Jews in the day of Jude, when he was writing this letter, held these writings in high regard. And this was a major important part of Jewish tradition and understanding of what was going on. One of those writings is very, very important was first Enoch. Okay? So Jewish tradition consistently understood Genesis this way, and you can check those, those references from Jewish tradition. Second, we know that Jude was specifically thinking of the book of First Enoch when he wrote this letter because he quotes that book directly in verses 14 and 15. Can we read Jude 14 and 15? It says this. Jude says, It was also about these people that Enoch, the seventh one from Adam, prophesied, saying, and then he goes into quotes. You see it? Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly deeds, of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That is a direct quote from the book of First Enoch. Jude is quoting a book that's not part of the Bible. 
Now don't freak out. Some people go, oh, wait a minute. That means First Enoch should be part of the Bible then. No. Paul quotes, quotes uh, poets that were in his day when he says, oh, it's like your own poets have said. We are his offspring. And in him we live and move and have our being. It's Acts chapter 17. Paul quotes modern poets in that day. Doesn't mean that their poetry should be part of our Bible. So, and the Bible does this all over the place. It actually quotes or references books that are outside of the Bible. Okay? What's important to understand is that the people that Jude was writing to held first Enoch in high regard. Maybe not as scripture, but as important to Jewish tradition and understanding. Okay? So he's writing to a people who knew the book of first Enoch. And so he quotes the book of first Enoch to them. Right? And he actually quotes it, and here, at least that phrase becomes authoritative because the Holy Spirit has moved Jude to quote that saying. It's saying it's just like that. Okay? So we know that Jude was thinking of 1 Enoch when he wrote this letter because he quotes it directly. And why is that important? Because 1 Enoch goes into great detail about the sin and punishment of these angels. 1 Enoch is actually laid out very much like Genesis in some ways. It talks about Enoch. It talks about his disappearance and what happened to him. Okay? Because actually Genesis tells us that Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. And people are like, what? What does that mean? He was raptured. He disappeared. He wasn't seen. The book of First Enoch, though it's not part of the canon of our scripture, goes into descriptive detail about what actually happened to Enoch when that happened. It's fascinating because I read that this week. I was like, whoa, okay. Right? Then it talks about the angels. Just like Genesis does, Enoch, angels. And then it talks about the flood, the judgment of God on the earth. It's laid out the same way. So we know that Jude was thinking of first Enoch because he quotes it. And Enoch goes into great detail about the sin and punishment of these angels and makes it clear that the sin was sexual immorality. If Jude had departed from that customary Jewish view of Genesis 6... Okay. then he almost certainly would have told us that here. Instead, he just flips it off like, you guys know, it's like the fall of the angels who left their proper dwelling. And, and, and so it's referencing Genesis 6. He's referencing first Enoch. And he's saying, remember how the angels left their proper domain, their dwelling, and they committed sexual morality with the daughters of men, with human women, and actually corrupted a lot of people even greater so it seems that Jude shares that understanding. Third reason we say that is because the text itself, here in Jude, verses 6 and 7, actually forges a parallel between the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sin of the angels. Is everybody still tracking with me? So there's a parallel that Jude is intending for us to see. And if you were one of the people originally getting his letter, you would have seen it right away. But let me read verses 6 and 7 to you. And the angels who didn't stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And the sentence continues, verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of fire. Now that's next week. We're jumping into Sodom and Gomorrah next week. I'm sure you're looking forward to that. Uh, those words are synonymous. Sodom and Gomorrah. I saw, oh, it's just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are, we're going to talk about that story next week. But he actually links the two ideas here. He says, you know how the angels left their proper dwelling 
and, and, and came among the, the, the daughters of men. It's just as Sodom and Gomorrah went outside of the bounds and committed sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. The angels were just like those in Sodom and Gomorrah. And all of them are like the people who are in the church going out of bounds and going beyond their prescribed limits of authority and corrupting others. And so it seems pretty clear for all those reasons that the sin of the angels mentioned in Genesis 6 was lust and sexual immorality with the daughters of men. And so those are the two streams of thought. And essentially Jude takes the two ideas and puts them together and his warning is clear. Two things brought ruin to the fallen angels. Pride and lust. Listen, guys, the enemy has no new tricks. Here we are, 2017, and, and, and what does he use to cause the fall of so many of us? Pride and lust. Same things. Same things. Even though, here's what Judah's saying, even though they were angels and heaven had been their dwelling place and they had tasted and experienced the very presence of God, still they had sinned and for their sin, they were marked for judgment. I said Genesis and first Enoch both go on to say that what happened after this, well, actually first Enoch, which is very important in Jewish tradition, Enoch tells us that these fallen angels then actually further corrupted people into greater sin and the world became even more ungodly and more wicked than it already had been because of the influence of these angels. That's according to first Enoch. And so Jude is drawing an important parallel here. That just like the ten spies had influenced the whole congregation of Israel to unbelief, which brought judgment and kept them out of the promised land, the fallen angels had influenced others to further rebellion that resulted in judgment of the flood and Noah and all of those things. So to his original hearers, all that was clear. Oh yeah, just like the ten spies came back and corrupted everybody with unbelief, these angels left their dwelling and, and further corrupted people into sin that brought judgment. He's saying, guys, don't forget that. You who are in the church, don't be fooled by those who are coming back and contradicting God's word and, and trying to spread unbelief among you. Let me remind you of the Israelites who missed out on the promised land because of the judgment they received for entering into unbelief and listening to the report of those ten spies. And let me remind you about how the angels left their proper dwelling and came and sinned the way that they did in pride and lust and corrupted other people to further sin, which brought judgment upon the earth. Don't forget those things is what he's saying. And Jude tells us what happened to these angels. Verse 6. These angels didn't stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. And he says, God has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So those specific angels that sinned in that specific way kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness awaiting final judgment. And Jude issues this as a warning to those who had infiltrated the church with false teaching and were leading others astray from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. William Barclay in his commentary says this, Jude was speaking to people in terms that they could well understand and was telling them that if pride and lust ruined the angels in spite of all of their privileges, 
Pride and lust could ruin them as well. The evil intruders within the church were proud enough to think that they knew better than the church's teaching and were lustful enough to pervert the grace of God into a justification for blatant immorality. Whatever the ancient background for his words, Jude's warning is still valid. Listen to this, guys. The pride which knows better than God and the desire for forbidden things are the way to ruin in time and in eternity. That's the warning that Jude is giving here. He's saying, listen, certain people have crept into the church and they are full of pride. And because of their lust, they are twisting the grace of God into sensuality. Don't fall for it. Remember the Israelites. Remember the fallen angels. So what do we do with this? How do we, in 2017, heed this warning? What, what can we do to keep pride and lust from taking root in our own hearts and from pulling us away from the Lord? I'm going to give you three things, and I'm going to give them to you really quick because of time's sake. You're like, yeah, right, you always say that. <laughs> <clears throat> Number one, ask God to search your heart. This is a good prayer to pray daily. Psalm chapter 139 Verse 23 and 24. Look at what the psalmist writes. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist is saying, God, you know my own heart better than I do. You know my heart better than I do. Please search out my heart and show me if there's anything in my heart that offends you. And then lead me in the way that pleases you. Man, if we would just get in the habit of praying that prayer every day, Lord, you know my heart better than I do. Please just search me out and show me if there's anything in there that's offensive to you. And then, and then, and then lead me in the way that pleases you. Lead me in the way of everlasting life. So number one, ask God to search your heart. You're not going to know that pride and lust and any other funky thing is in your heart until you're willing to let God show it to you. So ask God to search your heart. Number two, Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Look at Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That is, all the issues of life come from your heart. It just flows out of your heart. So he says, keep your heart. What does that word keep mean? It means guard it. Keep your heart. Guard it. Tend it. Cultivate it. Think of having a garden, a garden that is your heart. So to keep it is to stand guard at the entryway of that garden, to fence it off and to have an entryway at the garden. You're, you're guarding it and you're tending it and you're keeping it. And every time a weed of pride or lust or anything else offensive to God shows up in that garden, you weed it out. That's what guarding your heart is. That's what tending and keeping your heart is. And so you're asking God, show me anything in my heart that's offensive to you. And he shows you those weeds and you go, okay, I'm going to guard, I'm going to weed that. I'm going I'm to scoop that out of there. I'm going to keep my heart pure and clean before him. Weed out anything in your heart that is detrimental to your faith. And listen, let me just say this real quick as a sidebar, guys. Pay attention to what influences you allow into your mind and to your heart. Okay? Let's just pay attention to that. It's important. 
there's certain shows I can't watch. There's certain bands I can't listen to. There's certain things I can't do because they take me to a funky place. It's not that every song has to be, you know, whatever, you know, Jesus is Lord. That, that's great. It's that man, fantastic. You know, I listen to what we would call quote unquote secular music too, but I don't listen to everything. Okay, I have to pay attention. I listen to, I can't listen to stuff that, that, that hurts my faith or that takes me to a bad place or a prideful place or a lustful place or a funky place in any way. I can't, so let's guard, that's part of guarding your heart. We shouldn't be shocked. I, I talk to the kids at work about this stuff all the time. Like we shouldn't be shocked if, if you're struggling with purity, which is going to be a struggle anyways, but if you're struggling with purity, when all you pour into your, your head and your heart is, is garbage, lustful stuff. Stuff that's, I mean, I, you know, a lot of these kids are listening to stuff that's just this and this and that about women and about sex and relationship stuff. It's all garbage. And so you're putting garbage in, garbage in, garbage in. Well, guess what? Garbage in, garbage out, guys. Garbage in, garbage out. I'm not saying go whatever. You, you work that out with the Lord. It's not my job to give you the list of stuff. It's just we all have to work that out with the Lord. But you know what it is. And the Lord will help you know what it is if you don't ask him. That's part of the process. Ask me, is this offensive to you, God? Does this build my faith or hurt my faith? <clears throat> Does this strengthen me in living in the way of righteousness or hurt me in living in the way of righteousness? Whatever it is. So continually keeping your heart clear. Tending that garden. Keep it clear. Be vigilant. Do the work. Don't let up. So number one, ask God to search your heart. Number two, guard your heart. And number three, and this is vital, guys, repent and turn to God. Repent and turn to God. Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Why is this one important? Because I guarantee you, you're going to find pride in your heart or lust in your heart or any other thing that's offensive to God. You have stuff in your heart. I have stuff in my heart that is unhealthy, that's offensive to God. It's why we're going to spend the rest of our lives being discipled and growing in godliness because we have funk in there that needs to be dealt with over a lifetime by the grace and power of God. And not in our own strength. So I guarantee what's going to happen when you pray and ask God to search your heart and show you if there's anything funky in there, there's going to be something funky in there. And, and, and when you try to tend it out and keep it, listen, if you're just tending it and you're not repenting and trusting in God, then that's behavior modification. You're just trying to pull the weed yourself instead of going, ah, that's there. Lord, I repent of that. Like, help me to turn from that and empower me to to live differently and thank you that even though I've sinned in these areas I have that, that I have grace and I'm trusting in you for my salvation and not in my merits and not in my performance because my performance is going to continually be sprouting up new weeds in here just help me see them when they come up and help me garden and help me keep my garden pure and clean and, and righteous before you Repentance and trusting in Jesus for your salvation and to empower you to walk in holiness is vital to this. If you miss this part, you're missing the faith element and you're just going to try harder. You're just going to try harder. You're just going to get in your garden, ignore Jesus, and just try to pull weeds. 
And that's going to be exhausting, and you're going to fall out, and then you're going to quit. And you're going to go, forget it, and you're going to let that garden go psycho. Only way you can do that is by trusting in Jesus, repenting of your sin, repenting when you find pride and lust and anything else offensive in your heart. Repent of that, and then just trust in the salvation of God, the grace of Jesus Christ to empower you, to, to grow piece by piece, bit by bit, step by step, day after day, until the day of the Lord. Ask God to empower you to walk with humility and purity of heart so that we don't become those who are corrupting others with our unbelief because we've been led away by pride or lust or something else. Let's be vigilant. Amen? Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this word of warning, strong word of warning. But God, I pray that every one of us would take heed to it. Lord, search our hearts. Try us and know us and show us if there's anything in us that offends you and lead us in the way that, of everlasting life. Lord, lead us in the way everlasting. Lead us in your truth. Lead us in the paths of righteousness, God, we pray. Help us to, to guard our hearts and help us, God, that when we see those things in our hearts that are not pleasing to you, to just repent and turn to you, trusting in you for salvation, for forgiveness, for grace and mercy, to empower us to live a holy life before you so that we would not be led astray into unbelief. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.